No, no. Well, you're you're doing the difference to... between autonomous robots and then just like robots. And robots. Just... Yeah, yeah. We should probably do this podcast. And you should probably read the Bible more. Ooh. Yeah, I definitely should. <laughs> I definitely should. Are there any robots in Revelation? Maybe. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. I'm Justin Pardee, and my wife had a baby a few days ago, so any enthusiasm you detect in my voice is purely artificial. Mm, thank you for being real yeah, with so yourself, others, and God. I'm highly caffeinated for this week's edition of the show, so it should be a good one. Uh, my name is Stephanie Keen. I'm also highly caffeinated, but I've also been sleeping just fine. But you had a cupcake, so that's Oh, a, I did. I had yep. part of a cupcake. She and did. She the did man with cupcake. no cupcake energy. The PMB. No cupcake and no coffee. <laughs> Just the Holy Spirit. I, re- I had some coffee this morning. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good to you. I ran. I feel, say, I'm feeling you, good. How do you even live, bro? Mm. Do, you, do you even live? Well, hey, yes. guys. We are super excited to have you uh, hanging out with us here this week on the podcast. And here's the deal. I got to be honest with you. I think this one is going to be another five-star episode. And the reason I think that is because you guys keep giving us incredible, wonderful reviews. It's like the fuel for this space shuttle of spiritual exploration. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. To go where no man has gone before. Exactly. And before. woman. Yeah, Listen, thank you. This one is awesome. So this, uh, this review comes from DJ KK. So oh. four letters, also four syllables. Pretty, pretty impressive. But five stars. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Did smooth. I just that was amazing. Your... But no vowels. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but here, you'll like this one. It says, this five-star review is for the behind-the-scenes crew. Somehow they what? make everyone sound like a mixture of Jesus and Fergie. How did you know that those were my goals for every single day of my life? Mm. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm the Fergie one. So quick shout out to Kelly on the <laughs> no, other end of these microphones. you are delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Wyatt over there behind the scenes on social. Yeah, the wigster. We appreciate you guys. The wiggity whack. Dude, Lynn Joy Six says, the weekly debrief should be an essential part of every church. Pastor Matt, you should please silence your phones. Please silence your phones. It's not my phones. phone. It's not your phone? Mm-hmm. Oh, it was me? Oh, that was Justin's phone, everyone. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'll silence my phone. Just You just accused our pastor for well, your phone. He reached out and touched his phone. I don't know what happened. Well, hey, we are going to get right into it. Let's jump into some Q&A stuff. We've got a um, uh, bunch of follow-up from the last couple episodes, and here we'll get it. This first question comes from Debbie. She says, last episode, Matt, you talked about Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice. Why did God switch from taking animals as sacrifices to Jesus? Right. So animal sacrifice starts in Genesis chapter three, immediately after the fall of man. Uh, The Bible says that God slaughtered an animal and put coats to cover Adam and Eve. And Mm so uh, all animals ever were was a picture of what ultimately had to happen. And so uh, in Genesis three, we we see that uh, sin requires the shedding of blood. So he says uh, that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And so something must die. And so the first thing that dies is animals. Animals and all creation pays the penalty for our sin because we are stewards of God's creation and we were to live as kings and queens on earth. And so when we sinned, all that is under our rule and reign suffered. And so animals, unfortunately, bared the weight of the penalty of our sin Mm -hmm. for a period of time, but they never could carry uh, the sin ultimately because an animal is just an animal and it's a substitutionary sacrifice. Ultimately, what was required was for a man to die, but not just a man, a perfect man, which is impossible for us. And so Jesus Christ is that perfect man. He is the perfect sacrifice of God, the sacrifice without blemish. There's nothing wrong with him. He never sinned, never committed a sin, lived a perfect and holy life. And so Jesus is the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so that's why, uh, you know, after 
that it's interesting, you know, Christians don't sacrifice for sins anymore and eventually Jews don't. Mm-hmm. So even though, you know, they reject Jesus, that practice, you know, with the destruction of the temple in AD 70 really falls mm-hmm. out. Uh, so, so it is interesting that Jesus ultimately changes uh, both the religious life of Christians and Jews in some way. Our next follow-up question is from Gigi, and she says, you mentioned before that Jesus somehow withheld some information from himself. Do you believe that he also withheld the name of which of his disciples was gonna betray him, or did he always know it was gonna be Judas? No, he always knew it would be Judas. And so, you know, the Gospel of John indicates that he communicates this directly to Judas because the disciples ask, which one will betray me? And he says, it's the one with whom, you know, I I place my hand Mm -hmm. in, in the cup. And so he takes his hand with Judas's hand, places the bread, uh, in the wine, and then they eat it. And so Judas knows at that moment two things. Number one, he knows that he's the one who's going to betray him, which, you know, I think he probably was going back and forth whether or not he was going to betray Jesus. You know, he's wrestling through this. Um, but at that moment, he knows Jesus knows. Mm-hmm. So Jesus knows. And what's amazing is the rest of the disciples don't know, and they don't pick up on this. Right. They're clueless. They're like, who could it be? And he literally says, it is this person. And they're like, <laughs> ah! you know, and so that just, it's so sad how dumb we are as Christians sometimes, you know, they're like, who is it? And he's like, the one that I dip my hand in the, the, the cup with. Well, who would that be? Uh, the guy that I'm holding hands with dipping this bread in. And so they don't get it. And so, yeah, Jesus is, is very, very clear. So he knew, he knew that Judas was going to do what he was going to do. But what's interesting is he still prayed for Judas and he still loved Judas and still wished ultimately that Judas would not choose uh, to betray him, but, but he did. Got it. Okay. And then Gabriel wrote in, and I think we touched on this a little bit, but he says, I know we get new bodies uh, when we get to the next life, but will we be young or at the age that we died? He says, I've always had the image of my grandparents in their late fifties, but now they're here. They're in their eighties. They were once young and full of energy. Which grandparents will I meet in heaven? Yeah. I believe that you're going to, um, you know, meet your grandparents at the age that they were perfect, whatever age that was. I would say it's somewhere around 30. Hey. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Stephanie is a picture of, of physical perfection. Hey, yeah. um, not a picture of spiritual perfection, yeah, clearly. but a picture of over here physical perfection. I am well beyond that. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think that we're going to be at, you know, the age of whatever we were when we reached maturity and what that is. You know, our brains fully develop at about 26 um, our bodies seem to be at their best right around 30. So, and that's when Jesus Christ ultimately is crucified. And that's the age that he is. We don't know that, um, you know, so we're speculating, but I, you know, why, why would you be old? O- age is a part of the penalty of death, right? The aging process. So we'll have all the wisdom, we'll have all the knowledge, but we'll have the vigor to go with those things. Um, and we'll have even more knowledge because the apostle Paul says in first Corinthians that now we see things dimly in a mirror, but one day in our resurrected state, we will know things as we are fully known. And so he says, we're, we're, we're gonna have wisdom even that we don't have now. And we're gonna have a, a perfected body. You know, we have a dishonorable body now, but we will have an honorable body then. What was sown in sin will be raised in glory. So it's gonna be glorious. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's gonna be a thing of beauty. So I would say, you know, I mean, I this is speculation, but right. I'm gonna say around 30. Right, so congratulations, Gabriel. You're gonna meet your grandparents when they were even younger and had more energy than you remember them. Yeah, so it is interesting. And this is not, you know, don't run out and buy this book, but the book, Four Minutes in Heaven, uh, when the little boy goes to heaven, and I read that book a couple years ago, so my memory's a little shady, but he meets his grandparents. And in that book- mm-hmm. um, Is that the title of the book? Yeah, no, it's called it's, Four Minutes uh, in Heaven. Four Minutes in Heaven was the like the, the <laughs> junior high game. No, no, I, I, no, I think- the, that, um, Heaven, heaven is for real. Is for real. Yeah, heaven is for real. But I think he spends four minutes in heaven okay. in the book. Yeah. And so anyways, he, he's telling his, you know, he's talking about the people that he met. And so it, when he talks about who he met, he goes and he points to a picture of his grandparents when they're young. 
I'm I have no, I have no idea like why that was so funny. I'm losing it over here. Are you thinking about like four minutes in heaven in junior high? Yeah, like the four minutes in heaven Play game, spin the bottle. We would play at youth group in junior at high. At youth oh. group? Yeah. yeah. Listen. You're a sinner. Yeah, sorry. Let's all pray for Justin. <laughs> He's on caffeine, lacking yeah, sleep. Yeah. Really needs to be exactly. Say a prayer. Yeah. Here we all go. right, we got one last follow-up question from Spencer. We do, and he says that he's read that Jesus died in the afternoon and that this was actually the same time in the Passover tradition that the high priest in the temple would have been sacrificing Passover, Passover lambs for the people. Is that true? Yeah, we don't know. So there's, there's a discrepancy. So if you came to the service this week, we mm-hmm. talked about that there are some differences in the accounts of the four gospels as to the exact moment when Christ died. The synoptic gospels and the gospel of John don't seem to indicate that it took in the exact place. And, and we, we can't reconcile these differences. And so some people have tried, you know, there were two Sabbaths that week. It was a high Sabbath. We, we just don't know. We don't have a record of, you know, what was Christ crucified on a Thursday or was it a Friday? You know, we, we, we just don't have the information that we need for it to agree. And ultimately we just have to put that in God's hands. But John seems to indicate that, yes, that's the fact you know, and, and the moment that the lamb was being slain, Christ was being slain. So is John speaking, um, you know, historically, or is he speaking theologically at that right. point? We, we don't know because you can't, that's one of the differences that we can't sync up. We can't, we can't make it, you know, like I talked about, the eyewitness accounts are going to be different. John, John freely doesn't speak chronologically in his gospel. He right. is not interested in a calendar of events that Jesus Christ partook of. He is interested in the theology behind those events. What he wants us to understand is the meaning of what took place, not just the history of what took place. Whereas mm-hmm. Luke is going, is operating more of a historian and he's telling us what t- took place. And Matthew and Mark tend to lean that way. Although they all are trying to communicate what they believe right. uh, the events um, that took place mean. Because what, you know, if we don't have them telling us what they mean, we're, we're left with just history. And we don't just want the history of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to know the meaning so that we can follow him. So so yes, you know, I, I would say I, I believe that that's the case, but there are some discrepancies in terms of the exact moment when Christ is dying. Okay, so let's jump into chapter 23 here. And we've got all kinds of questions. This was another really long chapter, and we got a bunch of good questions here. And it starts off uh, with Jesus's trial before Pilate. In verse 3, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. And then down in verse 9, Herod asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. So last week, you talked about Jesus not responding to the questions of the religious leaders because they were, he was trying to expose the illegitimacy of his trial. But these guys are the Roman leaders. Why is Jesus being so aloof with them once again? Right, because he's not, he's not going to give them any weapon to crucify him for a crime. He's not going to, he's not going to give them any um, evidence that would lead him lead them to consciously say, well, this guy's guilty and we need to kill him. Because the reality is, if Jesus says he is the king of the Jews, if he says, yes, I am, that's who I am in a clear way, Pilate is probably needs to crucify him because that means he's a threat. He's a threat to okay. the uh, Roman empire. And it would really validate what you know the believers, uh, the Jewish believers are saying that this guy is a threat to the Roman empire. And so Jesus is just saying, that's what you're saying. That's what you guys are saying. And I think what Jesus is saying is you're misunderstanding. And in John, he communicates that. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my people would fight for me, but my kingdom is not of this world. So, um, you know, the gospel of John indicates that there was, you know, some more conversation there, you know, with Pilate uh, that we don't have in the gospel of Luke. And and so, you know, I, why isn't, you know, 
Why doesn't Luke say those things? And I think for, for two reasons. Number one, he doesn't have that source. Why? Because John is isolated on the island of Patmos towards the end of his life and they can't communicate. You know, they can't, um, they can't talk, they can't email, they can't write letters. John has been banished to a desolate island where ultimately the book of Revelation comes from. So um, Luke is unable to um, interview him and get that source. And mm-hmm. so that's why he doesn't communicate that. But, you know, Jesus is not going to give any of the leaders, Herod, this, this, the, the, the Jewish council or Pilate, he's not gonna give them any reason to crucify him. What the gospels wanna indicate to us is he is found not guilty and still killed. Mm-hmm. So that's why. Got it. So then moving into verse five, the leaders in the crowd start becoming insistent. And they say, but he's causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem. I don't remember reading about Jesus causing any riots. What exactly are they trying to really accuse him of? Here? Yeah, so one of, one of the things that, you know, let's just give a little history here. So the Romans were actually very, very um, loose in terms of how they handled civilization. So the civilization that conquered the, the Jews before was Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great comes through, conquers, he's the greatest conqueror the world has ever seen, conquers, you know, most of the world, the known world by the age of, I think like 32, and then he dies of some mystery illness. We're not mm-hmm. exactly sure how he dies. The Greeks were horrible in terms of a conquering people. They didn't allow the Jews to do anything. Jews were not allowed to honor the Sabbath. They were not allowed to circumcise their children. They were not allowed to you know, remember any of their holidays or, or the religious festivals, the festivals that the Bible says that they are to remember. Matter of fact, ultimately the Greeks turned the temple into a uh, shrine and a worship center for, um, I, don't, I don't, I can't, Remember Zeus or Hercules? I can't. I can't remember. It's, it's one of one of their gods. Okay. And they, they um, you know, Antiochus, who ultimately the, the city Antioch is named after, goes into the holiest of holies, literally just desecrates it, pulls all of the things out, and and the Greeks are horrible. The Romans are not this way. The Romans allow the Jews to worship. The Romans allow the Jews to you know remember their holidays. They give them a lot of control over their own life, and the Romans are actually really a quite decent ancient rulers. I mean, they're, they're not perfect, right? But they're way better than the Greeks because they outlawed circumcision. They said you can't, I mean, they burned people at the stake for for honoring the Sabbath. Think about that. I mean, they, they set people fire. I mean, it's crazy. So the Romans are really a peaceable nation. The only thing the Romans got upset about is if you're rioting, if you're causing a disturbance, if, you, if you're ruining everybody else's life, then that's a problem. And it wasn't just with Jews, it was with all religions. So there's there's religions in the Roman empire where people like to go out and get drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they would, they would go out and get drunk and then they would get in their chariots and drive home. Well, think about DUIs nowadays. Right. What do you do when you're hammered driving a chariot? You run over women and children in the streets. Yikes. The Romans said, knock it off. This particular religion couldn't do that. So they killed them all. We're done. You can't, you can't kill children in the streets with you guys being drunk. So one of the things that the Romans said you can't do is you can't riot that you can't cause a disturbance. Why? Because what do riots do? Think about riots in America. Mm-hmm. Riots disturb innocent people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you burn down somebody's shop who has nothing to do with the crime. You destroy somebody's property. You hurt somebody. Riots produce chaos in everybody's life. And so yeah. the Romans said, look, believe whatever you want to believe. Be crazy in your own way. But when your craziness affects the general well-being of the public, we're going to crack down on you and we're going to kill you because that is not acceptable. And so what they're trying to say is that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is rioting and he's not right. He never riots. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're lying. They're, they're trying to make up a trumped up charge to get Jesus put to death because they know that one thing the Romans won't tolerate is rioting and they're threatening it. 
So the one thing I was wondering about is just when Jesus goes into the temple and he goes kind of berserk, right? He gets angry and upset. That's the only thing that I could think of. Is it possible that there was a disturbance that maybe came up out of that? Or is this all just kind of total? Right, but he really doesn't. I mean, I, I don't know that one person whipping people is classified as a riot. So a riot yeah. is inciting others to violence. And so uh-huh. when Jesus does that, he doesn't say, hey, everyone, destroy the temple with me. He yeah. does it all by himself, mm. um, demonstrating his own power. So he is not guilty of starting a riot. He may be guilty of whipping people, which, right. you know, <laughs> he did. Um, but- you know, what he was doing was right. I mean, people were abusing their power and they weren't allowing people to worship God in the way that they were supposed to worship because they, Gentiles and women were not allowed to get close to God. And so he drove them out. And I think the people all were thankful. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank God they got these con artists out of the temple. And so, right. so yeah, he okay. was individually violent in that moment, but he did not incite violence. And so what they're accusing him of is inciting violence and saying he is responsible for you know, these hundreds of people doing this. And, yeah. and he, he never did that. It's really interesting too, that last in last week's chapter, he, all, he even calms down Peter when Peter was trying to like yeah. fight back and everything too. It all kind of makes a little bit of sense. So there, there goes this back and forth between Pilate and Herod as they're both examining Jesus. And then verse 12 is really interesting. It's got this little set of parentheses and it says, Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. And uh, I was just wondering if Luke is adding this thought because it becomes historically significant at some point? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that, you know, number one, his source, who, he, has a, he has a source who saw this take place that the other gospels don't have. So, um, you Got know, this, this conversation, um, this friendship that was sparked. And I mean, this would be like Hillary Clinton and um, Donald Trump, you know, taking a vacation together maybe a year or two from now, which I don't think is going to happen. These two people <laughs> hated each other, were political rivals, couldn't stand each other, basically are both in it for their own well-being. Um, you know, the Pontius Pilate's trying to climb the political ladder and he's in Jerusalem. He hates it there. He wants things to go well. Herod would like to be the king. He doesn't want a Roman governor overseeing him. But the reality is the Roman governor's there because Jews get a little crazy. And so things are a little tense there. Mm -hmm. And so they want Roman legions there exercising control over the Jewish people because they, they get a little wobbly. And specifically at the time of Passover, right? Thousands and thousands of Jews, you know, come upon, um, you know, Jerusalem, think Times Square in New York on New Year's, right? All these people from everywhere come to celebrate there. Same thing happens um, in Jerusalem. So think of all the police work that has to take place for New Year's Eve in New York. Same exact thing at Passover. You got a bunch of crazy religious Jewish people gathering together who ultimately want the Messiah to come to throw off Roman leadership and bring about the kingdom of God. And so that's why Pilate's there. That's why Herod's there. They're all there to control all of these Jewish people from getting overly excited and trying to overthrow the Roman government. Really quickly, to make sure I understand the relationship between Herod and Pilate, I'm almost picturing Herod is kind of like the mayor of Sacramento, and then maybe Pilate is like the governor of California, and then every once in a while, the the governor is getting involved in some local affairs? No, it's, it's, it's not like that. So... F- there, there are periods of time where Jews have self-rule. And so there's a brief period of time, the Maccabean revolt, Judas Maccabeus, if, you're, if you have a Catholic Bible, there's first and second Maccabees, yeah. and it records the story of Jewish independence, which is really the last time they're independent until 1947. So it's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. So there's you know over a 2000 year period where they're not even an independent nation. And so um, 
Jews have independent rule for a period of time. I think, I don't, I don't hold me accountable on this, but I think it's about 100, 150 years. And okay. then ultimately the Romans who, this is interesting. The reason the Romans get involved in Jewish history is the Roman, is Jews actually reach out to the Romans for protection. Hmm. So the reason they get involved is the Jews invite them to be involved to help them overthrow the Greeks. Okay. And so ultimately then Rome becomes the power and they get there and dominate. But um, Jews are allowed self-rule for periods of time. And th- what happens is a Jewish leader goes to Rome, becomes the king of the area, but that gets wobbly. A lot of those kings, you know, they're in it for themselves. And so ultimately there becomes this kind of dual leadership where Rome has its own military leader there, the Roman governor, but there's still the quasi king of King Herod, who's really the ruler of the Northern area. He's the Galilean leader. So it, it, it's a bizarre, it's, it's a bizarre mess. The Romans didn't know what to do with the Jews. And ultimately they just decide to just destroy them because they, they just aren't, they don't, subject themselves well to, to Roman leadership. So got it. So now we're back with Pilate and verses 13 through 15 say, then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people. And he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I've examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done is called for the death penalty. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. So Jesus knows that he needs to die, but he even submits himself to what looks like blatantly unjust torture. Like Pilate doesn't need to have him flogged. Is this part of what needed to happen to fulfill scripture? Or is there something we should learn here about how to respond to being treated unjustly? Yeah, I think it's both. Yes, Jesus absolutely had to die. And it's interesting. Luke is trying to show us and he's trying to show, you know, his Roman audience, his Gentile audience, that Jesus was not a revolutionary. He was not a zealot. He's not one of these wacko, crazy Jewish people in the wilderness trying to overthrow um, you know, Roman authority. He, he's not trying to do that. He's not inciting riots. He's not mm-hmm. doing any of these things. And by the way, the political leaders that Rome has placed in charge agree with this. Herod agreed with this, you know, king of the North. Pilate agreed with this. Really the, the, the um, I mean, I use the word king. There's only one king in mm-hmm. Rome and that's Caesar. That's where we get the word Kaiser from. It's the king. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really only one king and that's Caesar, but he has you know, subjective kings underneath him. And so Pilate is the governor who really operates out of Caesarea. He's only in Jerusalem because it's Passover. Mm-hmm. You know, his base is in Caesarea, which was a beautiful Roman city um, in modern day Israel. And it's one of my favorite places to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's showing that Jesus Christ is crucified by religious people who claim to know God. And I think this is what's important. And I know that in my life, you know, the people that have caused me the greatest pain and the greatest suffering have been those who claim to know Christ. The people who talk badly about me, stab me in the back, say awful things about sandals. They're not non-Christians. They're people who claim to be Christians. And it's interesting that the people that were often hurt by the most are those who claim to be followers of God. And so, you know, whenever we're depressed or discouraged, or this causes us to maybe get wobbly in our faith towards God, we need to go back to Jesus. Who ultimately is responsible for killing Jesus? It is the religious leaders who believe they're doing this in the name of God. And it's tragic and it's sad. And so I think we all need to um, understand that, you know, sometimes we're gonna get our feelings hurt in church. Um, you know, you think about what the Catholics have gone through with the, with the mass molestations that took place, right? Mm-hmm. People in the name of God are harming children. And so a lot of people lost their faith and they go, how could a loving God ever allow this to happen? Well, people have always, you know, done great crimes in the name of God. And so that doesn't say anything about who God is. Jesus is the spokesman for who God is. Mm -hmm. 
what those people doing and the atrocities that they commit, it tells us about them, not about God. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately that's why, again, why do we pray your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your kingdom come? Why are we praying for the new heaven? Why are we praying for the new earth? Because ultimately when Christ reigns, these false religious leaders, these people who do damage and hate and hurt in the name of God will all be dealt with and they will all be judged. Remember Luke 12, they're gonna be torn to pieces, beaten severely and beaten mildly. Right. Right. I mean, Jesus is going to deal with these people who hurt people in his name. And so we just need to understand if you're going, if you've been hurt by a church, you've been hurt by a Christian, you need to understand. So was Jesus. So was Jesus. The non-believers, right? Herod, he is not interested in God at all. Pilate could care less. He says, what is truth? He doesn't even believe that there is truth. Those guys are like, this guy's innocent. It's the religious people that say flogging him is not enough. Beating him is not enough. He has to be crucified. He has to die in the worst way possible. You know, it's, 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 it's the people of God that, that, that should know, right? The people that studied the Bible the most, they're the most unkind. And that's what's so tragic. And I've seen that time and time again, you know, people who study their Bibles constantly, oftentimes are the most evil people I meet hmm. because they want to slay people with the word of God, not save people with the word of God. So is there a lesson that we can learn here about perseverance? Because Jesus really submits himself to this process that feels really, really just totally unjust and he endures it. And even in the passion of the Christ, I know it's not the Bible, but there's just that one scene kind of in this whole process where he stands up from just the beating and he picks up that cross. I'm just wondering if we should learn from that type of perseverance. Yeah, absolutely. I think the tragedy of modern day Christianity is that we think suffering is always evil and it's not for our good and our benefit. Oh, wow. And so part of the problem is as Christians, you know, we, we constantly go to God and we ask God to take away the very thing that's going to produce the thing in our lives that we need the most. Hmm. And so the way that we grow is suffering. And as Christians, we should learn to, to grow through suffering. So if you think about working out, right, you cannot strengthen your body unless you endure the pain. The same thing is true. You cannot become Christ-like through blessings. You do not grow <laughs> through blessings. You know, you yeah. grow through suffering and yeah. that's the reality. And so, you know, if I could go back and talk to, you know, my 35-year-old, you know, self at Matt Brown, you know, when, you know, I'm losing my best friend, I'm having conflict with my family, the leadership at Sandals Church is a total disaster. I would say this suffering is going to produce in you the leadership that you need to lead Sandals Church to the next level. So quit asking God to take it away and submit to the process, submit to what God is allowing you to do. And so if Christ doesn't suffer, we're not saved. And so ultimately what men meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's, that's the story of the gospel. I mean, think about Romans eight twenty eight that God uses all things for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So what people mean for harm, God uses for good. And so we need to quit saying, God, take this away, but say, God, teach me what I need to know in this process so that I can become who you want me to be and who you've called me to be. Because ultimately, again, Romans 5, 1 through 5, what does it say? We know that suffering produces great qualities in us. You know, it's not fun. It's not easy. But the reality is, you know, Christ has saved us and he wants to change us into people that reflect who he saved us to be. And the way he does that is through suffering. Gotcha. Uh, so as the trial and all this process moves on, it actually, some translations skip verse 17, where it says that it was necessary for him to release one prisoner during the Passover celebration. Is it weird that it just, why does it cut that out or does that matter? Yeah, because, 
So when when the, when the uh, Catholic Church put numbers in the scriptures, that you know they only had the manuscripts that they have. They don't have the older manuscripts that we have now. And so what we found out is that seventeen is an insert by a scribe at some point trying to explain. So it's a scribal explanation of why this had to take place. So you know he is writing that down so that you know people understand why would Pilate do this. The Gospel of Mark has this already in it. And it's not an addition, it's in the original manuscripts, but this scribe wrote that in there. And so at some point, the copyists, as they're copying it, instead of writing on, on the top, they just inserted it maybe with parentheses and then eventually the parentheses are dropped and it becomes a verse. So it's not problematic, it. it is accurate. I mean, it did happen, that's why it happened, mm -hmm. but it, it's not a part of the original manuscripts. And so most translations now, just it goes verse 16 to verse 18 and there's no 17. Right. Okay, so we have this really interesting moment happening in verses 22 through 25, where Pilate demands, what crime has Jesus committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison, for insurrection and murder, but he turned Jesus over to do to them as they wished. Okay, so this part really messed with me as I was reading it this week because both of the highest government leaders are clearing Jesus and saying he's innocent, he didn't commit a crime, but these religious people will not let it go. And now it's not just the religious leaders, now the whole mob is starting to demand this. Why does Pilate give in to the crowd? Like, what authority does he have if he just lets the crowd kind of choose? Right, so there's there's two things here. Number one, I want you to notice, and, and you may not have caught this while you're reading through it, but I think it's interesting that, you know, how many times does Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Three times. How many times does Pilate say, I have found nothing wrong with him? He interviews him three times. Hmm. So three times he says, so I, isn't it interesting, right? The believers deny Christ, the non-believers affirm Christ. Hmm. And I think that Luke's trying to, and I'm not saying you made this up, but I think it's interesting that the guy who doesn't know Jesus at all, he affirms him three times. The guy who knows everything about Jesus, Peter, right? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember, yes. remember that guy, <laughs> yeah. right? I don't know him. I don't know him. You know, and he curses. I, I absolutely don't know him. And so I think it's interesting here. You know, here, here's the reality. Why do politicians do anything that they do? They cave to political pressure. You know, um, you know the events that took place in San Jose. You know, and I, I mean, I'm not a Trump endorser. You know, many of the things that he says drive me crazy. But if you look at the events that took place in San Jose, you had people that, for whatever reason, right? They're they, they're politically aligned with Donald Trump. They're at this rally. They are being punched, kicked, thrown at. I mean, they're being assaulted. And, and did you see the rows of police standing there doing nothing? What is the role of a police officer to make sure that doesn't happen? That is the role of police. Protect Why them. didn't they do it? One answer, political pressure. Political pressure. So, so we ask ourselves, well, why would Pilate do this 2,000 years ago? Well, why do we do the things that we do now? Political pressure. I mean, it'd be interesting to find out what any politicians truly believe they're constantly <laughs> trying to stay elected. And so Pilate is trying to walk these two, these two lines. One line is based upon what he knows to be true, and number two, based upon what's gonna get me in trouble. And so here's the reality. His number one job in Jerusalem is to keep the peace. They're trying to keep the peace. And so why don't those police officers engage in San Jose? Because they're making the assumption, we're going to allow this evil to take place to these Trump supporters because if we engage, what's going to happen? It's going to escalate. More people are going to get hurt. So they allow an evil to take place to a minority of people to keep the peace for the masses of people. Okay, now no one's ever gonna say that's the decision that they made, that's the decision that they made. And I'm telling you, okay, that's politics. Pilate's doing the same thing. 
I can allow this evil to take place to this one individual, okay? And but I'm no way claiming Donald Trump supporters are like Jesus, so back off. You know, <laughs> we're gonna get our three star, two star, zero star <laughs> reviews. I'm just saying that's an example of whether you're for Trump or not. It's not okay for women to get punched and men to get punched. I mean, from behind, right? Right? That's 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 sin. It's terrible. That's awful. You can disagree with somebody, but you don't harm them physically. Sure. You just don't do that. Uh, I mean, it's wrong for Trump supporters to punch somebody. And it's wrong for anti-Trump people to punch somebody. Physical violence is evil and it's not yeah. acceptable, but they do nothing. So Pilate says, okay, I can kill Jesus, which I believe is wrong. His wife and Matthew, the gospel of Matthew says, don't kill this guy. Mm-hmm. I can kill this one guy, which I know he's in it. He's clearly innocent. And that's why he flogs him. He has him beaten, hoping that they'll be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And he beats him severely. Look, yeah. I beat this guy up. I think he's learned his lesson. And they say, no, you got to crucify him. And so now what's taking place is it's Passover weekend. He knows the Jews are all fired up. They're all excited, right? Think about what happens after a Super Bowl game? You know, your team wins. People are, you know, excited. They're all right there. They're going to do things in a mob that they wouldn't do eventually. They're all there. They're all the people that the Jewish leadership have paid to be there, right? These are like paid protesters. They've been brought in. The deck is stacked against Pilate. He can't win. So he has to make a decision. Do I incite a riot in this moment when there are hundreds of thousands of Jews in the city, or I just kill Jesus and survive? And he makes the decision in this moment to kill Jesus and survive. He chooses his own political career over what's right. Mm-hmm. Did Pilate sin? Absolutely. Jesus says in, in the other gospels, those who have brought me to you are guilty of the greater sin. So their sin is greater. You're sinning, but their sin is greater, which again, you know, Christians always say the stupid thing. All sin is the same. Mm-hmm. They haven't read their Bibles. Okay. All sin is evil, but it's not all the same. Um, you know, me thinking about punching you just in the face and then actually punching you in the face is two different things, right? right? And I think you would experience that. In keep it in your brain, dude. Ways. Yeah, I'll keep it in my brain. Not that I want to punch you in your beautiful face. Thank That's you very much. Awesome. So yeah, no, so this whole thing is, makes no sense whatsoever. And historians will rebuff this because there are other times where, you know, Pilate is known as extraordinarily vicious. And again, what is a politician? A politician is a calculating individual who's trying to remain in power. That's what politicians care about. They don't care about what's doing right. They care about remaining in power. And Pilate's, Pilate's a politician, right? He does his very best to where, again, right in the other gospels, he washes his hands and says, I, look, you guys killed him. And they say, this is on us. Mm-hmm. This is on us. Oh, and by the way, our children, Oof, that's ugly. Because in AD 70, it is on their children and it's awful. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that like basically the biggest thing that they didn't want people to do is to riot. And these people are start like you're saying, like he's trying to avoid them inciting a riot. They're really starting to do that here. Do you know if like any of those leaders and stuff got in trouble with the Roman government for starting to incite this whole Yeah, like, they're they're causing riots now. Yeah, they're starting to cause riots, like com- trying to get him to kill Jesus. Do you think there was anything to try to shut that down or just they thought killing Jesus will shut down this Who uprising? who thought? Pilate. Yeah, yeah, no, because they're telling him mm-hmm. we have no king but Caesar. So here's here's how they're manipulating Pilate. They're they're threatening to riot, but they're doing so in the name of loyalty to Caesar. Mm-hmm. So they're they're messing with him, right? So we don't want to riot because we have no king but Caesar. Mm-hmm. But this guy is claiming to be king. So if you kill him, our loyalty, right? Th- this mob is going to go away. And so, okay. I mean, ultimately, can Pilate squelch the rebellion? Yes, but at what cost? perhaps his life, the life of many soldiers. So, I mean, he may not have all of his, you know, soldiers in the right place. You know, he may not 
He may be squelching other things. We don't know. Where He has a limited number of soldiers. Where are they? What are they doing? We don't know where they're positioned. We don't know, you know what's going on. Um, I mean, I've been in Jerusalem you know, when President George Bush was there. There was probably 25,000 Israeli soldiers throughout the streets. Mm-hmm. I can tell you there were corners where I did not feel safe because soldiers can't be everywhere. Mm-hmm. They can't be. And so Pilate is trying to figure out what's the best way to end this. So I don't know if I, that answers. No, that totally answers. Yeah. Okay, so in verse 26, we started this shift toward the actual crucifixion. And um, Jesus is moving towards the hill where he'd be crucified. And uh, he stops and turns to these women and says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And then he, he continues on predicting the coming fall of Jerusalem. So I got two questions here. Number one, is the, is the fall of Jerusalem, right? And you've talked about it a little bit before. Is that happening because now the crowds have joined in with the religious leaders calling for Jesus's death? Yes. So, I mean, the religious leaders, those in authority, those in power. And here's the thing that's amazing about Rome. Rome gave Jewish leadership incredible power, incredible authority. You're seeing an example of it. They just manipulated the Roman governor and he gave them what they wanted. So they have power and they're responsible for the death of Jesus. And so, yes, God will judge the entire city of Jerusalem and ultimately the entire nation of Israel for the crucifixion of Christ. Okay, so Jerusalem's going to be destroyed for this whole moment. But we, you know, even now you've been saying these, we got paid protesters. And I got to imagine there's hundreds, if not thousands of people here in the city of Jerusalem that don't want what's about to happen to happen. Um, But yet they're going to experience this punishment in the future. Yeah. Makes me wonder, is God doing this whole guilty by association thing? Are they guilty because of the sins of the others around them? Well, ultimately we're all guilty for the death of Christ. I mean, all of us are guilty. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that the Jewish leadership is specifically guilty for the criminal death of Jesus Christ. But ultimately he's he's not just dying for us, he's dying for those who manipulate, coerce, Pilate to crucify them because if they repent of their sins, uh, and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. Just like the apostle Paul is a persecutor of the church, a murderer against the church, has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ and becomes an apostle and ultimately changes the history of the world, proclaiming the, the resurrected Christ. So, you know, but but here's here's why we need to pray for our leaders because the reality is the decisions that our leaders make affect us. Mm-hmm. Whoever the next president of the United States is, we need to pray for that person, whether we love that person or not, whether we voted for that person or not. Because, you know, if Barack Obama starts a war somewhere, my son can go and die. Mm-hmm. So the decisions of leadership ultimately affect those who are underneath him. And so we need to be praying for our leadership. And ultimately, you know, did the people of Jerusalem have the authority to deal with this Jewish leadership? I think so. But they, you know, for whatever reason, they were in their homes, you know, and again, we talked about in the sermon, they strategically picked, you know, arresting him at night. They do this trial right before Passover because they know they can do this without the crowds because the crowds are preparing for Passover. So they've calculated this. And what they don't realize is God has calculated this because you asked me earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, Jesus Christ is killed at the exact time that the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. So, right, they're, they're plotting this because they think it works in their favor and God has ordained this because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, yeah, they're they're slaughtered ultimately. And, and the truth is, you know, the Israelis, you know, just like the Christians, historically, we believe that the Christians fled the city of Jerusalem. They did not fight 
for the Jews. They, they fled. Um, and, and many Jews did as well. I mean, not all Jews died. They're still Jewish people today. Mm-hmm. 1.1 million, according to Josephus, died in this conflict. And I think he says about 150,000 were carried away as slaves. So it was brutal and it was ugly and um, it was awful. But yeah, the city had to be judged. Got it. Gotcha. So up next, it says that two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. So obviously there were other people crucified with Jesus because that was the method of execution at the time. Is there anything in the Bible that points to the fact that it had to be crucifixion or would any like death penalty have sufficed here? Yeah, I think any death penalty would have sufficed. I mean, the Bible does say that he was, um, you know, Isaiah talks about he was bruised, he was beaten for our transgressions, but it doesn't specifically, you know, foretell a death on a cross. Uh, you know, the cross hadn't been invented when many of the scriptures were written. There are some things that allude to it. You know, cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. Jesus mm-hmm. Christ became cursed for our sins. You know, a cross is a tree like, right? It's a, it's mm-hmm. a, a tree that's been cut down and then placed up. Isaiah says that he will be pierced for our transgressions, but that really doesn't, you know, has more to do with the nailing and the pierce in his side. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't see the cross as specifically predicted in the Old Testament, but ultimately, um, and, and again, had it been laid out more clearly that he would die on the cross, I think the Jews wouldn't have done it. So they, they, they didn't understand that. They didn't mm, understand the yeah. mystery of God that's revealed. And right. so that's what Paul talked about. Like when you read the book of Ephesians over and over and over again, you know, if you ask me, what, what is the book of Ephesians about? It's about the mystery of God that's been revealed. And so the mystery of God was that he crucified his loved son so that we could be saved. So I think that crucifixion is probably the cruelest form of death that humanity has ever invented. And so that's why God had him experience the most awful, ugly physical torment, which ultimately is not the worst that Jesus feels. Ultimately, you know, the gospel of Luke does not record the saying, but Matthew does. But yeah, you know, uh, I, can't, I can't say it in um, Aramaic, but it's like, Eli, Eli, Allah, Sabnachnini, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The worst thing that Jesus went through. And so I, I believe that's why the, the sky goes dark and black because Jesus Christ is ascending into hell. Um, and not for three days, it's three physical days on earth, but time is something that only exists in our realm. Time does not exist in heaven or in hell. And so Jesus experienced an eternity's worth of time. I mean, right, I just said time doesn't exist, but he, he entered into an eternal state of hopelessness, hmm. an eternal state of darkness, right? An eternity apart from God without hope of ever being made right with God again. So it wasn't three days, it was three days according to our schedule, but in eternity, it's right. It's, it's, it's eternal. It's eternal. Just like when we go to heaven be with God, it's eternal bliss, eternal you know, mm-hmm. beauty. He entered into eternal sadness, darkness, and rejection. And so that's the thing that broke Christ's heart the worst. What was ultimately the most painful experience for Jesus was having God turn his back on him. Right. So verse 34 captures this moment where Jesus says, speaking to God, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers stood by gambling for his clothes by throwing dice. Why is Luke sharing this specific detail? Is it pointing to something specific? Well, yeah. Well, so that they gambled for his clothes is is a prophecy that is spoken of in the Old Testament, um, you know, by the prophets uh, in regards to the the Messiah. So that's one of the things that were fulfilled. But ultimately we know from Luke that Herod gave him a very, very expensive robe and it's worth a lot of money. And so after they're done mocking and beating him, it's like, hey, let's gamble for this. And it was, it was a one piece of cloth. So they didn't want to cut it into four pieces because its value was in the size of the cloak. And so they were just going to decide 
who got it. Um, but ultimately, I think that you know Luke records this because he needs to teach the Gentile audience that God does not want to judge us for the death of Christ, but ultimately wants to save us because of the death of Christ. And so, um, you know, we can be remorseful and saddened by Good Friday, but it's Good Friday, not Black Friday, because without that death, we're not saved. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, Jesus understands that if they don't kill him, they cannot be saved by him. He must die in order for them to live. And so this evil, while awful and the most horrific evil event in the history of the world, ultimately brings about the greatest event in the history of the world. And that's what God does, is he takes things that were meant for evil and he uses them for good. And so, you know, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think that this is one of the easiest ways as Christians to forgive people who have hurt us is Mm -hmm. oftentimes they don't understand the full extent of what they've done to hurt us. And, um, you know, we can just say they don't know what they're doing. You know, when someone hurts us, they don't understand the scope of what they're doing. They don't understand the pain of what they're doing that's causing us. And so Jesus, I think, is pointing to a great example for how we can forgive people. We can just say, well, they don't know what they're doing. So, I mean, sometimes they do, but even though these people are 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 doing an intentional act, they do not understand ultimately, right? If they, if they knew they were killing God's son, what are they gonna do? They're gonna stop. Yeah. Everyone would have stopped. And the you know the later uh, writers in the New Testament will say that had they known who they were who they were killing, they wouldn't do it. Hmm. No one would. Yeah, that's actually a good segue into verse thirty five. It says the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others. They said, "Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one." It seems like at this point the leaders and everyone around would have been willing to accept Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah if he had chosen to save himself right then. So did Jesus really have to die? Yeah, so he absolutely has to die. And so again, notice what Paul says, the crowd watched, they keep, they're in disbelief. Well, Luke is saying this, right? Yeah, Luke is saying the crowd, they didn't. They can't believe, right? This guy who just entered into Jerusalem a week ago as like the coming king, right? Most popular ever is now being crucified. They, they don't know what to think. And they're not exactly sure as to what's gonna happen because he did save others. He did perform radical miracles. And so they're curious, is he really going to die? You know, when, when I said, when he cries out, um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the Aramaic, it's Eli, Eli. And they thought he was calling Elijah. So, mm-hmm. you know, Eli is short for Elijah. They didn't realize that he was calling God, 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 God. So mm-hmm. they don't even, they don't know what's gonna happen. So yeah, he has to die. So ask me your question again. Well, it seems like, so at this point they're saying like, okay, if you're the son of God, like do this. Like would Jesus having saved himself in that moment actually convinced them that he was the son of God or the Messiah. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it's why a billion Muslims reject Jesus as the son of God, because they say God would have never allowed his son to die in that way. And I think again, we miss we miss the mystery of what God was doing. God is not trying to conquer us in this moment. He's trying to save us. And for hmm. us to be saved, Christ must die. There has to be a blood sacrifice for sins. That's what the Bible says. You know, sin brings death in order to pay the penalty for sin you know, a death must be given. And so the question is what kind of death it has to be the perfect death. And so Christ is that perfect death. So he has to completely die. If Jesus Christ did not completely die, he couldn't have been in a coma. He couldn't have kind of died. He had to actually die. If he didn't die, you will never live. If he didn't die, you will never be saved. So he must die as a sacrifice to take away the sins for the world. Hmm. Yeah, I just want to pause and say for those of you guys that are listening, this is like obviously really heavy. And I mean, I've grown up in the church and I'm here on staff now and everything. And this is one of those areas where I feel like I just don't even fully still understand the hows or the whys or the what's, but just 
choosing to trust and uh, be grateful and, and you know, yeah, is where I'm at right now. So if you're feeling a little bit lost and like, whoa, so are we. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the team. Um, so there's this really incredible moment that happens starting in verse 41, where Jesus is being crucified between these two other guys. And one of the criminals cries out. He says, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And here's what's, here's what's cool. The, Jesus's innocence has been mentioned eight times so far in the chapter. Is Luke trying to tell yeah, us something? Absolutely. He's completely this? innocent. He's not a criminal. He's done nothing wrong. Okay. And, and then very next verse 42 through 43, Jesus says, uh, or no, the same criminal says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. So it sounds like Jesus just saved this guy, but he didn't really fully have time to like become a Christian or whatever. What's essential for salvation to happen? Yeah. So let's just make this note that Matthew and Mark indicate that both criminals mocked Jesus. So Luke doesn't tell us that. He just tells us that one of the criminals mocked Jesus. Okay. So, so, so how do we reconcile those differences? Remember we talked about, you know, not all eyewitnesses are gonna see the same thing. What I would say is at one point, this criminal was joining in the mockery, you know, was right. Probably not a very good person because yeah. he ultimately says, I deserve to be up here. Mm-hmm. So he has done something horrific. Um, but then at some point, you know, being next to Jesus, um, seeing Jesus, spending time with Jesus, he has a change of heart and he realizes this guy is innocent. He has done nothing. And he simply asks, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so what what is required of salvation? And the answer is one word, it's faith. We have to believe. And so this guy, you know, remember he's dying on the cross, he's suffocating. He is expressing faith. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has also expressed repentance. So what are the two essential qualities all throughout Luke and Acts? What are the two essential qualities for salvation? Repentance of sin, which he says, I deserve to be up here. Mm-hmm. Faith in Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has expressed both those. And it's not saying the words right. You know, a lot of times when we lead somebody to Jesus, we want to lead them through a specific prayer. The prayer is just to help a person articulate repentance and faith. Repentance of sin, God, I'm sorry for my sin faith in Christ. Jesus Christ, I place my faith in you. I trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live for you. And so obviously uh, the book of Acts, as we get into it in the next couple of weeks, the next step, if you're not hanging on a cross dying mm-hmm. is baptism. But when you're hanging on a cross dying, one cannot be baptized um, You know, for as a external picture of the internal reality of their repentance of faith. So what is baptism? It's a picture of you dying to yourself. So Luke 9, 23, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. So baptism is a picture of your death. You know, um, Colossians also says it's the new circumcision. So just as Hebrew children were, you know, circumcised males, not females, males were circumcised on the eighth day uh, to symbolize their children of God as believers in Jesus, the way that we symbolize that we're children of God, the external sign is baptism. Mm -hmm. And so we are baptized as a sign that we are children of God and we are followers of Jesus. And so the beauty of baptism, right, is it represents both faith and repentance. So John preached the gospel of repentance, repent and be baptized. Jesus comes along, repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe in me, but still says baptism symbolizes both those. So death to yourself and life to Jesus. And that's, that's what we're, we're living for. And so, you know, ultimately, right, Jesus Christ is worthy. So he is worthy and he can save anybody he wants to save. 
So Jesus, right? He's the authority on who's saved. So when he tells this guy, today you're gonna be, right, right. Nobody can go, hey, he didn't run through the prayer correctly. Jesus is God, you're not, get over it. He's saved. I love how this guy says, man, I deserve to be up here. As Christians, we believe that that God, Jesus, he died in, in the place of our sins. Is there anything that we can do practically as we're following Jesus to help us just be like, you know what? I deserve, I deserved yeah. that. Are there things that we can do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think that we need to look to the cross and understand that Christ, Christ is going through this for us, that these are the most righteous people, the most God honoring people, probably in the history of the world. And they're the ones that killed Jesus. And so self-righteousness is a false righteousness. So anytime you believe that, you know, I can be good enough for God to do this, man, you're lost. Hmm. I think we got to go back to the Lord's prayer you know, Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I would say the way you judge your understanding of your sinfulness is the is is based upon how seriously you take the commandment of Christ to forgive those who've sinned against you. If you don't understand your sinfulness and what Christ forgave, you are going to struggle forgiving those who've sinned against you. And so I think there's there's a direct relation between your self-understanding of your own sin and your willingness to forgive those who've sinned against you. So people who can't forgive don't either have not been forgiven by Christ or do not understand. They're not real with themselves. They do not understand how much Christ has forgiven them. Mm -hmm. And so on the cross, this guy realizes I deserve to die. And so as Christians, we've not all committed the same sins, but we've all committed really these two sins, the denial of God and the worship of other things, which is covetedness, coveting other things, desiring other things. I want a husband more than you. I want a wife more than you. I want a child more than you. I want this boat, this car, sex with this person more than you. I want love more than you. Anything that we say we want more than God is idolatry and is covetedness, which every human being is guilty of Yeah. because it's saying, you know, just like that question last week, you know, people are really wrestling with, I want my loved one in heaven with me. I want this person with me. You know, will my family members, you know, even the question of, well, I still want to be married in heaven. What is that wrestling with? It's covetedness. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what does Jesus say the most important command is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With what? All your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. What God wants us is to love him more than anything else and to want to be with him. And so ultimately, again, we fall short even in love. You know, people are saying, well, am I going to be sad? You know, all my relatives aren't there. Maybe because you don't love God more than anything else. Hmm. You know, you, you don't want to just be with God. You, you want to be with your loved ones. And, and when we read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, one of the most powerful points in that story is when a mother is demanding that her son leave heaven and come with her to hell. Because she doesn't want to be with God. She wants to be with her son. And her broken love would rather that her son be with her in hell so they can be together than her son go and be with God because she's still selfish. She's still self-centered. A God-centered life, I want to be with God forever and I am going to be complete in him, with him forever. Even as Christians, it just proves we're still sinful. And that's why Jesus says, unless you hate your mother, unless you hate your father, unless you hate your own child in comparison to how you feel about me, you will have no part of my kingdom. Our focus has to be on God. Why? Because what's his focus? His focus is on us. God cared more about you than he did his own family. 
right? Yeah. He sent his son to die on the cross. He cared more about you, Justin, and more about you, Stephanie, and more about all our listeners. He put you over eternity with his son. Mm-hmm. And he sent his son to die on the cross. And what are we worried about? Well, I, I, I can't go to be with you, God, if my family's not there. Well, what's still first in your life? Your family. God's not first. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving your family. There's nothing wrong with wanting your family in heaven. What's wrong is when we covet our family more than we desire God. Yeah, That's sin. And mm-hmm. that's the thing is, is God has to be first and he yeah. does not want to be anything else. And on his end, that's what he's done for us. He's put us first. And that's what the gospel says. We have that one video clip um, from one of your sermons up on Facebook, and it's just got so many, so many views. You can talk about how to ruin your kids and your marriage in less yeah. than 60 seconds. And one gal commented on that video, and she's not a part of Sandals Church or anything, but she was a young college girl. And she said, um, I'm choosing not to be a Christian because I don't like that God tells me to love him more than my family. Yeah, and, and she understands the gospel better than Christians <laughs> Right, do. that's literally what I was Which, just Which, by the way, look what's happening on the cross. Who are the people that get it? It's not the religious people. It's the drunk soldier. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's all these people that that understand, you know, the religious people think, oh, he's calling out Elijah. No, he's calling his father. Mm-hmm. The religious people miss it. It's the thief on the cross that gets it. Mm-hmm. It's the drunk soldier that gets it. These are the people that get saved. It's the people who are far from God that understand the gospel. Religious people don't get it. Well, I feel like even that girl is getting the actual cost of following Jesus. Yeah, totally. I think there's plenty of people who are like, oh yeah, I'll follow Jesus. And it's cool because I'll just keep loving my family more. I'll keep doing all this more. But I think she gets like, oh, if I'm going to follow Jesus, he has to be it. Yeah. yeah. And I love that she was willing to be real enough to straight up say, this is why I'm not following God. Right. But here's what's amazing is, if my wife wants me ultimately to love her more than I love God, she's damned herself. Hmm. Here's what's amazing. When I love God more than her, she will experience love from me that I could never give from myself. Golly. Yeah. It, it's right. I mean, you know, and so what's so sad is in their selfishness of saying, I'm going to love my wife, I'm going to love my kids more than God, ultimately what they're doing is they're saying, I'm not going to love my wife and I'm not going to love my kids. Hmm. Because love comes from God because God is love. And so what you are, what we call love really is self selfishness and it's self worship. And, and, and that's hell. Self-worship is hell. Yeah. Mm. All right. The next two verses are the exact, are describing the moment that Jesus dies. Um, so the first verse says, and suddenly this curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. What's the significance of the curtain being torn right now? Right. Again, so what is what is the temple? And, and so many Christians don't get this. Oh, the temple's so beautiful and the temple's so amazing. Yeah, well, if it's so beautiful and amazing, why isn't there one on the new earth? The temple is barriers. The temple represents barriers between us and God. No matter how hard we work, no matter how much we try to keep the law, right? I mean, these individuals are 613 laws. They're trying to keep all these laws. So you have Gentiles, they can only get so close. There's the court of the Gentiles, there's the court of the women. Women can only get so close. Then there's the court of Jewish men. Jewish men can only get so close unless you happen to be, you know, a, a priest, then the priest can get that close. And then amongst the priests, only the high priest can get to the holiest holies once a year. What is it? It's, it's, it's a castle of barriers hmm. that physically represent our spiritual separation from God. So Jesus Christ dies on the cross. We no longer need a temple because Christ has destroyed the temple because, you know, right? I mean, what does he say? You can tear down this temple in three days. I will raise it up. Who's the temple? It's Jesus. And so now the veil in the temple separating the high priest from the holies of holies is torn. And I love this. Luke doesn't communicate this, but Matthew does from top to bottom. 
Mm-hmm. Why? It was torn from heaven. Mm-hmm. God tore it. At the darkest moment in human history became the greatest moment in human history. God torn the veil. We are no longer separate. Through Christ, you can have a personal, intimate relationship with me. Now, you don't have to be of the priestly lineage of uh, Aaron anymore. You know, Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek, which we can talk about another thing, right? Yes. This is this weird character that shows up in the book of Genesis and Abraham seems to worship him or not worship him, but tithe to him. Yeah. Um, and we have a high priest whose name is Jesus. And because of that, now we have direct access to God. And listen to this. How did the high priest come before God? Humbly, with a rope tied around his waist in, ca- in case God struck him dead. Hebrews says, we come now to the throne of God boldly. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we're not coming as sinners. We're coming as sons and daughters of the King. And we can come into the presence of God. And um, you know, no matter of what we've done, right? So if the high priest has sinned, God strikes him dead and they have to pull him out with a rope. Mm-hmm. Now I sin every day, yeah. every day, all day, but I can come to the throne of God because Jesus Christ intercedes on my behalf and he has saved me and he sustains me. And this is the gospel. Christ died for me. It has nothing to do with what I did. He did it all. He died. He saved. He's perfect. My faith, my trust, my hope, everything is in Jesus. You know, you think about the differences between the two individuals, Buddha and Jesus. You know, how did Buddha end his life? What were the last words of Buddha? Keep striving. What are the last words of Jesus? It is finished. Mm-hmm. We don't have to work anymore because he worked it out for us. All we have to do now is confess our sins to God and throw ourselves on the cross. Mm-hmm. Jesus, you did it all. You paid it all. And this is why the world needs to know about Jesus because it's God's love for us. Lost sinners, right? That's what the gospel says. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die before you because you were awesome. He died for you because he's awesome. He did it. He's the high priest. He receives the glory. He receives the honor. And that's why with this, all this crap about, well, all religions lead to the same place. No, they don't. All religions except for one do lead to the same place. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that breaks my heart, you know, Muhammad Ali died this week and, yeah. and everybody, oh, he's in a better place. He's a better place. Muhammad Ali was raised Christian. He rejected Christ. He rejected Christ. Who is Christ? He's the one person who atoned for our sins. You know, Muhammad Ali is one of the greatest people of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt, great talent, great individual. The Bible says it doesn't matter how great you are, even if you're the greatest, which Muhammad Ali said he was. (laughs) Without Christ, we are all damned. Without Christ, we are not headed to a better place. We are headed to an eternity apart from God. And um, that's tragic. Mm -hmm. The world needs to know that Jesus Christ is the only way. John 14, six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, this, no man, regardless how great he is, comes to the father, but by me. And it's just, it's just really, really sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not to say that Muhammad Ali didn't do great things in his life. Yeah. Wasn't, didn't, didn't, you know, didn't accomplish great things. It doesn't matter. None of us are worthy. Only Christ is worthy. You know, I'm not comparing myself to Muhammad Ali. I'm comparing Muhammad Ali to Jesus. And when I do that, he falls short, incredibly short, not even close. Right. And so that's why the world needs to know about Jesus. Uh, and not because we want to judge the world, but because God loves the world. John three sixteen. Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is God's olive branch. Jesus is God's offering of peace. And it's his only 
offering of peace. Mm-hmm. So. so then the next verse that recounts Jesus's death says, then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Was Jesus's physical death inevitable because of the crucifixion or did he have to actually let himself die? I believe he had to let himself die. He had to surrender. So we have to go to Philippians chapter two, where it says he humbled himself even to the point of death. Christ has power to the very end to not die, mm-hmm. right? How do we know this? Because he tells dead people to come forth. Yeah, He has the power of life in him. So he must relinquish this power. He must lay it down. And he tells Pilate this, no one takes my life, but the son of man lays it down freely. So he gives up his life. So the flogging, the crucifixion, all of those things are affecting the physical body of Jesus. But ultimately Jesus must give up his spirit. He must choose death. It cannot be chosen for him. He has to lay it down. Because in this moment, he, right, he can do a miracle. I mean, think about what everybody says. He saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. They all acknowledge that he has powers to heal. I mean, you know, you think about like, um, uh, you know, all the superhero powers and, and like yeah. Wolverine, right? Has that self-healing power. Yeah. Jesus had that. Mm-hmm. That's a biblical idea. He, he can heal others. He has that ability in himself, but he chose not to use it and he died mm-hmm. and he gave up his spirit. And he says, God, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What is he saying? This is all God's plan to kill Jesus, to save me, to kill Jesus, to save you, <laughs> to kill Jesus, to save us. And it's a beautiful plan. Yeah, because I don't think I'd realized until now, like Jesus wasn't killed by people, right. like that Jesus died for us, like that it was an intentional decision to die. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that until just this whole process. He is submitting himself to physical torture. He's submitting himself to a kangaroo court. He's submitting himself to beating, flogging. He's submitting himself. I mean, Jesus is allowing the blood to flow from his body. He has authority, Hmm. right? The devil says, what does the devil say? Jump off, jump off this bridge and say a word and God will send 10,000 angels to save you. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. You know, I, I just can't imagine what the angels in heaven must have been doing at this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you think about that angel that God sends in Revelation to imprison Satan. That's a bad <laughs> yes. ASS angel. Because <laughs> yeah. you know what Revelation says? He does it by himself. That's crazy. He throws Satan down and he chains him. God has got some serious bros. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, God has warriors that we have no idea how powerful they are. And those angels are weeping mm-hmm. and they're weeping. Mm-hmm. And only, only the love of God can hold them back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember Dex talking about that when he was preparing for Good Friday and he was talking about this, like the, what he was imagining the moment to be like as God was watching his son die on the cross and having to hold back all of heaven's armies from rushing forth. To- yeah, and we see these angels released in Revelation. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're rough. Yeah, it's like all of that. Yeah, it's pent up. You know, it's like we've been waiting. So this whole chapter closes out um, and Jesus is now going to be buried. And verses 50 uh, through the end of the chapter say, now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. 
And some of the ladies that had been following Jesus mm-hmm. went and began preparing, um, the, I guess, the oils and spices to anoint his body. So is this kind of treatment that Jesus is now receiving not normal? Do people that get crucified not usually get treated to a respectable burial like this? Yeah, no, they would have been thrown into hell. So, and by hell, I don't mean the actual hell. So when Jesus talks about hell, he refers to Gehenna, which is uh, basically the city dump. Um, right, right, right. I can't remember what side it's on. It's on the opposite side of uh, the Mount of Olives. So that's the east side. So it'd be on the west side of the city. Okay. Um, and so it's basically just the city dump where Jesus says, worms never die mm-hmm. and the fire never goes out because how did the ancient world deal with their trash? They, they burned it. And so what they would do with crucifixion bodies usually is they would take them and they would just throw them in the city dump and they would just burn and rot forever and be eaten, right? So it's a disgraceful death and it's a disgraceful barrier. It's interesting, two things are interesting. A, that Joseph of Arimathea, the other gospel says that he has to do this secretly because he's concerned that they might crucify him. Mm-hmm. And he goes to Pilate and, and, and makes this request. So that shows us that this is out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. This is not something that happened to those guilty of crucifixion. So. Right, the point of crucifixion is to be the most humiliating death possible. Romans wouldn't just say, "Okay, now that they're dead, let's treat them with respect." No, you died naked. You'd be thrown in the dump heap. You know, you know that's it. It's it's extraordinary here that Pilate allows Christ to be buried in a tomb, and it says that he was buried in a new tomb. Um, the other gospels say because it was close, and they got to hurry because Sabbath. Sabbath is going. It's interesting to me that Jesus's physical body was not thrown into the physical, literal hell, but he went his, like, right, I guess his soul, his spirit went to the hell that he had been telling us about that whole time. Yeah. It's interesting that he escaped that, but yeah. So we can escape it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Lots of stuff in here, man. This was this is really great. I mean, I can't believe that we are coming up on the very end of Luke. Next week, we're going to be uh, closing out the book in chapter twenty four, um, and it gets pretty exciting. Um, so there's some good stuff coming next chapter. A lot of a lot of good stuff probably came up from you guys. If you've got questions uh, about this stuff you just heard on the podcast, about the sermons, things that you've been reading in Luke, send them in. We would love to get them here on the show. You can just go to sandalsearch.com slash the debrief, or you can uh, message us or leave some comments on our Facebook page. Just search for the debrief podcast on Facebook and you will find us over there. Great. Well, we are going to close out this week's episode with an inspirational quote, as we usually do. This week's quote, uh, one of my personal favorites, so be nice. Uh, Teamwork makes the dream work. Oh, I agree. I mean, that's great for the church, man. You know, we're not meant to do it um, together. You know, I always describe Christians like Legos. You know, we're nothing by ourselves, but when we work together, we become something amazing. So, you know. And, and we're, meant to, we're meant to do this together. No one is the body of Christ by themselves. We are all a part of the body of Christ. And uh, individuality is really what kills the community of Christ. And so we need to work together, build together, serve Jesus together. And that, that flies in the face of, right, Americanism. I do it myself. I'm a self-made man, self-made woman. Well, the reality is, you know, Christ has made us and he has called us to work together. So that's beautiful. That's a little bit long for a, for a Pinterest poster. Yeah. So we'll stick with teamwork makes the dream work. Mm-hmm. Hey, can we, uh, let's just close it out with like a team high five. Okay. Gonna, I don't think I can reach you guys. Can't really reach. There yeah. we go. We I touched one. both of your fingers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me just, yeah. Let me just close out with these words. You know, I just want to pray for you guys. This was a heavy, a heavy mm-hmm. podcast for a lot of us. And, you know, I think we can ask questions all day long, but the bottom line is what we need to do is just thank Jesus for his death. Preach. And, um, you know, um, and again, you know, my comments on Muhammad Ali, look, 
Muslims need Jesus in the same way that Hindus, atheists, and Christians need Jesus. We all need a sacrifice for our sins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I simply, you know, indicated him because he's a famous person that died. And so, um, you know, some people will be very offended by that, that, you know, Christ is the only way, but that's what he said. And we do him a disservice to proclaim anything else. And so we need to be thankful that Jesus Christ died for our sins because without him, we are condemned to an eternity of hell. We are hopeless and we are lost forever. And um, that's tragic. Totally. But the good news of the gospel is for all those who believe in him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And that is that is the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. You want to pray it out for us? Yeah, yeah, sure. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross. Lord, help us to communicate this message of love uh, to those who are lost and need to hear it. Um, Father, I realize that uh, these words today, they're only being one way, are so offensive um, and so not tolerated in our modern culture where um, all religions are acceptable except those who claim to be the only way. And so, Father, um, we just pray for our church that we would communicate this message in love to our our Hindu, uh, Muslim, uh, and atheist neighbors, and even yes, to, Lord. Lord, those who um, call themselves Christians but have not yet truly given their life to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, Lord, let us all be humbled yes, um, because without your son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, I am headed to an eternity of hell. I'm not saved by my righteous works. I'm not saved because mm-hmm. I'm a great man or a good man. I'm saved because Jesus is both and was mm-hmm. perfect. And so, Lord, we just confess Christ to the very end, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we got to squeeze our hands together to yeah, close out so the prayer. You just go, prayer oh, yeah, prayer mm-hmm. squeeze. <laughs>